0: Hasn't the music been fantastic tonight? Thank you to the choirs from First Baptist Kilgore and the choir here for their great music. And thank you for turning out tonight. You know, this has gotten to be a habit. I was looking back, Brother Charles. I've been coming since 2015. And I've now, if it's August, I know it's time to head east to Longview, Texas. And thank you for having me back. Uh, I love Brother Charles. His uh, son and family, uh, Jeremy and their family are such important parts of our church church at First Baptist Dallas, and uh, Jeremy's involved in our music ministry. I've I've tried to hire him several times, and he won't see the light, but pray for us. But, uh, you know, yesterday, as a part of our music program, we had the Hoppers. Do you all know the Hoppers, you know? (laughs) There's something else. Uh, Claude Hopper is the patriarch of the family, 82 years old. And he said, you know, he said, I'm 82. And... Connie, my wife, noticed I'd put on some pounds, and she said, Claude, you need to go down to the gym and take care of that. So I went down to the gym and I started looking around, and I saw the treadmill, I saw the weight machine, I saw the bicycle, and I said to the attendant, where is the machine that is going to make me look attractive to the ladies? (laughs) The attendant said, well, sir, that machine, we keep out in the lobby. It's called the ATM machine. So I don't know why I told that, but uh, I just like that for some reason. Well, it's good to be with you. It's good to laugh in God's house and have a good time celebrating. But tonight, what I'm going to talk to you about is something very, very serious. I want you to have your Bibles ready. You know, it was Vance Habner who said the job of the prophet is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. You know, that's really what the writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews does. He, first of all, offers comfort to those Christians who are being afflicted. These first century Christians, many of them had come out of Judaism, they had embraced Christianity, and yet they were being afflicted, persecuted for their belief. And some of them were in danger of going back into Judaism and And the writer says, don't do that. Why would you go back into an inferior system? Jesus Christ is the perfect high priest... He is a superior priest who has offered a superior sacrifice and has obtained a superior salvation. And then beginning in chapter 10, verse 19, he says, just think about all that Christ has done for you. He has established a pathway to God. He has become a high priest who offers us comfort and direction and help in our time of need. In light of those things, let us draw near to God when we're being afflicted. Let us hold on to our hope. Let us stay close to other Christians in the body of Christ. That's the comfort that he is offering the afflicted. But then comes the question, what happens to Christians who don't respond that way to problems, difficulties, temptations? What about Christians who allow problems and temptations to drive them away from God instead of closer to God? What about those Christians, and you know them, who instead of holding on to their hope, they let go of their hope? What happens to Christians who instead of staying close to other Christians and the church, they separate from other Christians and isolate themselves from the church? What happens to Christians like that? And that's where the prophet engages in afflicting the comfortable Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. This passage we're going to look at tonight is to me the most terrifying passage in all of the Bible. It's the most severe of every warning you'll find, not only in the book of Hebrews, but in all of the New Testament. Let me read the warning to you. Perhaps these are verses you have wondered about for a long time. Look at what the writer says beginning in verse 26. For if we deliberately sin... After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment, and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. If anyone disregards Moses' law, he dies without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment! Do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, has regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know the one who has said, Vengeance belongs to me, I will repay, and then again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. People debate this passage. They wonder, is the writer talking to Christians or is he talking to non-Christians? Maybe you think, well, that's kind of splitting theological hairs. It really doesn't matter to whom it's written, all Scripture's inspired. It doesn't matter uh, who he's referring to here. Oh, yes, it does. I mean, just imagine you go to the pharmacy to pick up a prescription and you're standing there at the counter and the pharmacist says, may I have your name? You say, oh, that's not important. Any of those packages up there will work just fine. Yeah. No, if you're gonna take medicine, you wanna be sure it's medicine prescribed for you. Uh, taking somebody else's medicine, not only will hurt, uh, not be a help to you, it can actually hurt you you need to know for whom the prescription is written. The same thing here. It's very important to know whether or not he's talking to Christians or non-Christians here. There are some people who say that he's talking to Christians and the sin that he's warning Christians about is apostasy, giving up your belief in Christ, falling into sin and disobedience. And he's saying that if you do that, these people say, a Christian who falls into sin, gives up his faith, will lose his salvation. There's no longer a sacrifice for sins. They say it's similar to the warning in Hebrews 6, for in the case of those who have been enlightened and become partakers of the Holy Spirit and then have fallen away from God, you cannot renew them again to repentance. People who believe this say, just as people in Hebrews 6 lose their salvation, he's talking about Christians who lose their salvation. Now, I will admit there are passages in the Bible that sound like that, and this is certainly one of them, until, until you look at what other scripture teaches. Scripture is the best interpreter of other scripture. And Hebrews 7, verse 25, remember what the writer says? He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Christ. God saves us forever. If salvation can be lost, then it's not forever, is it? Remember what Jesus said in John 10, 28 and 29? For I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. No man shall snatch out of my hands those whom the Father has given to me. Listen to me, ladies and gentlemen. Becoming a Christian is not a case of my reaching up and grabbing hold of God. Salvation is when God reaches down and grabs hold of me. And when God grabs hold of you, He never, never lets go. Now, this is not talking about Christians who lose their salvation. Well, other people say, well, then it must be talking about non-Christians. These are non-Christians who are close to being saved. They've been enlightened, they've heard the truth, they maybe join a church, they're close to being saved, but they've not made that final step of trusting in Christ as Savior. And then they fall away, and we all know people like that. People who may be professors of Christ, but they're not possessors of Christ. And we see that all the time. I just read in the news a couple of weeks ago. You probably saw it. Well-known Christian author, wrote a best-selling book 20 years ago. Josh Harris, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Strong Christian, everybody thought. And now he says, I'm no longer a Christian. He's given it up. Uh, another uh, member of a well-known praise group, a Christian uh, song group. Uh, they've announced that they're not a Christian and people are all shaken up about it. Let me give you a little word of advice. This is just extra, won't cost you anything. Don't base your faith on a 20-year-old praise singer and a praise band, okay? Don't, don't, don't do that. People are all shaken up about that. Well, they professed to be Christians, but they weren't Christians. You know, Jesus talked about that in Luke chapter 8. Remember the parable of the soils? He talked about the seed that was scattered and fell on four different types of soil. The seed represents the Word of God. The different soils represent different conditions of the human heart. And some of the seed, remember, fell on the shallow soil. It looked fine, but what you couldn't see was there was a thin bed of limestone right underneath the soil. So the seed was implanted. It beginning it began to grow, but because of the limestone, it never developed a root system. It sprouted above the ground, but when the hot Palestinian sun appeared, it started to dry out the plant, caused it to wither and die because it had no root system from which to draw the moisture that it needed. That's a picture of what some people do with the Word of God. They come close to embracing it. They make professions of faith, but they have no root system. They are not truly saved. And then when persecution problems of life appear, their faith withers away. Some people say that's what he's talking about here. People who are close to being saved, but are not saved. And yet... The context and even the text itself doesn't allow for non-Christians to be the subject of this passage. Going back to verse 19 of chapter 10, Therefore, brother, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary by the new and living way, Who is it that has boldness to enter God's presence? It's not non-Christians. The we refers to us. Let us draw near with a true heart. Let us hold on to the confession of faith. And it's the same passage, verse 26, for if we deliberately sin after receiving the knowledge of the truth. The context here is we, we, we. He is talking about Christians. Well, pastor... Are you saying then that a Christian can lose his salvation? The key to understanding this passage is understanding the kind of sin he's talking about. And it's right there in verse 26. For if we, some passages say, translations, willfully. My text here says deliberately. What he is talking about is Christians who continue in deliberate sin. Maybe you remember that in the Old Testament, there was a sacrifice for every kind of sin imaginable. You have a sin, we've got the solution for it. Offer this sacrifice. There were sacrifices for sins of passion. If you allowed anger or lust to overcome you and you sinned, there was a sacrifice for that kind of sin. There was a sacrifice for sins of ignorance. If you were guilty of breaking the law, but you didn't know about it, there was a sacrifice you could offer. There was even a sacrifice for sins of omission, not things you did, but things you didn't do and should have done. There was a sacrifice for every kind of sin except one. What the Bible, the Old Testament called the deliberate, literally the high handed sin. Numbers 15 says anybody who commits a high handed sin, it's called high handed because when you sin deliberately, it's as if you are raising your hand and shaking your fist in the face of God saying, I don't care what you say, I'm going to do what I want to do. I know this relationship is wrong, but I'm going to continue in it anyway. I know this business deal is dishonest, but I need the money and I'm going to do it. I know I ought to forgive this other person for hurting me, but I'm going to hold on to my bitterness, even though you say God to forgive. That is a high-handed sin. And under the Old Testament, there was no judgment. There was no sacrifice for that kind of sin. And he's saying the same thing here. If we keep on sinning after Receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no sacrifice for our sins. So what happens? Verse 27, <clears throat> all that awaits us is a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fiery of a, fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. <coughs> well, pastor, it sounds like you're sure talking about hell here. I mean, the writer talks about expectation of judgment. The fury of a fire consuming the adversaries. Doesn't that sound like he's talking about losing your salvation and going to hell? It does until you get to verse 28. And then he explains, what was the judgment for the high handed sin in the Old Testament? He said, if anyone disregards Moses' law, he dies without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now listen to this. Under the Old Testament, if you committed a high-handed deliberate sin, you didn't lose your eternal soul, but you lost lost your physical life. You were put to death. You suffered the judgment of God. You were cut off from the community the sacrifices under the Old Testament could not shield or protect a person from the immediate consequences of his disobedience. And that's what the writer is saying here. The blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to save you from the eternal consequences of your sin, but not the temporary consequences of your sin. Even the blood of Christ will not shield you. There is no sacrifice that will shield you from God's discipline, His severe judgment in your life. And that's what he's saying here. Anyone who disregards Moses' law dies without mercy. Notice what he says in verse 29. If under the Old Testament when people had a limited understanding of God and no scripture in their hand and no indwelling of the Holy Spirit, if God dealt with sin that severely in the Old Testament, look at verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think we deserve? You know, there's this thinking, it's bizarre thinking, that somehow the Bible has two gods in it. There's the God of the Old Testament. He's that angry, old, intolerant God who just has no patience with anybody and judges sin. And then there's the New Testament God, who's kind of chill about sin, really. He's kind of a, can't we all get along, God? the nice God, the merciful God. And hadn't you ever been tempted to think, boy, I'm sure glad I don't live in those Old Testament times when God was really serious about sin. No, God never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Punishment for sin was not worse in the Old Testament, it's worse under the New Testament. Not eternally, but certainly temporarily. Because notice what he says, If you think under the Old Testament it was severe, how much more punishment do you think we deserve? We who have the full revelation of God in Scripture, we who have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God uh, inside of us, how much severer is our punishment? Why? Notice the three things He says we are doing when we commit deliberate sin. And it graduates in intensity. He says, first of all, if you're a Christian tonight involved in sin, you are trampling on the Son of God. I think the KGV, the NAS, say you have trampled underfoot the Son of God. Does that phrase sound familiar to you? Remember in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste saltiness, it is worthless and is to be cast out and trampled underfoot by men. In Jesus' day, salt was a preservative before refrigeration. It helped preserve the meat. But after a period of time, the salt would lose its effectiveness. It would break down and become worthless. So people would just throw it out on the street and it would be trampled by passerbys on the street. He said, when you as a Christian... Continue in sin. You're basically saying Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross is worthless. You're saying sin is really not a big deal. I'm going to continue in it anyway. If it caused my sin for Jesus to be nailed on the cross, so what? If Jesus died on the cross for my sins, he did not have bothered because sin isn't that big of a deal to God. When you sin, you are counting as worthless Jesus Christ Himself. But even worse than that, secondly, you have regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified. That word profane is a Greek word that was used to describe these mongrel dogs that would roam through the streets of Jerusalem. When you sin as a Christian after being washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, you are saying to God that the blood of Jesus has no more value than those mangy, mongrel dogs that walk up and down the streets of Jerusalem. And thirdly, when you deliberately sin as a Christian, and this is the worst of all, you have insulted the Spirit of grace the Holy Spirit of God. If you're a Christian, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And when you sin, when you basically reject the Holy Spirit's conviction of your heart, the warning not to do what you're doing, what you're basically saying to the Holy Spirit is, I don't give a you-know-what what what you say, Holy Spirit. To heck with you. I'm going to do what I want to do. You say, what is the big deal about that? Do you remember what Jesus said? Every other sin man commits will be forgiven by God, but one. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. To blaspheme means to speak out against the Holy Spirit of God. And that is exactly what you and I do. When as Christians, we continue to sin without remorse. What happens to a Christian who does that? Look at verse 30. For we know the one who has said, vengeance belongs to me and I will repay. And the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. When he talks about we as Christians who sin are going to fall into the fire of God's judgment, what does he mean? In the Bible, fire is not just a symbol of hell. It's a symbol of God's judgment. It's a symbol of loss. In the Old Testament, when you sin deliberately, you lost your physical life. But the punishment for us is much more severe than that. Let me mention four things you are in danger of losing if you continue to deliberately sin against God. First of all, the loss of your influence for Christ. When you continue to sin, you lose your influence for Christ. Remember Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 9? He said, for I buffet my body and I make it my slave, lest after having preached to others, I myself might become disqualified. Paul's greatest fear as a Christian was he would do something or say something that would hurt the reputation of Jesus Christ and cause him to be put on the shelf and no longer used by God. You say, well, that's not a big deal to me. That's not that bad. If that's your attitude, you say, what's the big deal about that? That only shows how far away from God you really are. Not only is a sinning Christian in danger of losing his influence, he's in danger of losing his happiness as well. In Hebrews chapter 12, later on, he talks about what happens to a Christian who is under God's discipline. Now listen to me. As a Christian, you're not gonna face God's condemnation in hell. You can be assured of that, but something else you can be assured of, you're not gonna escape His discipline in your life. And in this life, you can't tell the difference between God's condemnation and His discipline. It hurts when God disciplines you. No discipline, he says in verse 11, seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the fruit of peace and righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Do you remember what your mom used to say to you when uh, you misbehaved at home? She said, Just wait till your what? Father gets home and he will deal with it. Now, you probably weren't worried that your father was going to kill you. You probably didn't doubt that deep down he loved you. You didn't fear being thrown out of the house, but that didn't give you any comfort. You spent the whole day in a terrifying expectation of judgment to come of what your father was going to do to you. And remember when that time came for him to spake you? What would he say? What does every parent say? You remember it, don't you? This is going to hurt me worse than it hurts you. That's the first of many lies our parents told us. <laughs> because the fact is, it didn't hurt them nearly as much as it hurts the one being disciplined. Discipline hurts. And what child do you know that in the middle of a spanking says, you know, this is painful, but I know it's going to yield the fruit of righteousness and the years to come. (laughs) Oh, Father, thank you so much. Could you give me another, please? No child does that. Discipline is painful. And listen to me, folks. So is God's discipline. After 40 years of being a pastor, I've seen it in other Christians' lives, and I've experienced it in my life. It's never fun. God's discipline can remove every ounce of happiness you have. I've seen God deal with other Christians severely, either causing or allowing the loss of a job, the loss of health, the loss of a mate, a child, a grandchild. No, I'm not saying every time those things happen, it's a result of God's discipline. But sometimes it is. For whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. And you listen to me tonight. If you continue in deliberate sin against God, He loves you too much to allow you to continue in that sin without sending severe discipline into your life unrepentant sin not only causes us to lose our influence our happiness sometimes it results in the loss of life first john 5:16 talks about there is sin unto death sometimes a christian can be so stiff-necked and rebellious against god and such an embarrassment to the kingdom of god that god says enough I'm going to take you home with me where you can't do any damage to the cause of Christ. Again, not every Christian who dies prematurely dies because of God's discipline, but some of them do. 1 Corinthians 11 talks about those who have fallen asleep because they were abusing the Lord's Supper. Sometimes God will take your life. You know, sin unto death... In the Greek text, 1 John 5, 16, it doesn't say the sin unto death. People want to wonder, what is the sin that causes God to take your physical life? There is no one sin. It's not this or this or this. It is a state of sinning. It's when your conscience is so seared, your conscience is so hardened against God that you've reached that line that God can no longer speak to you, you can no longer hear Him, and God takes you home. The loss of our life. And then finally, deliberate sin against God results in the loss of our rewards. You know, we talked about this several years ago. If you're a Christian tonight, don't think you're going to escape God's judgment. Every Christian is going to be judged by God. Now, we have a different judgment than non-Christians. Non-Christians stand before the great white throne judgment, Revelation 20. And the Bible says, if any man's name was not found written in the book of life, he was cast into the lake of fire and tormented there day and night forever and ever. That is a judgment for condemnation for non-Christians that results in eternal hell. But there's another judgment for you and for me who are Christians. It's called the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one of us may be rewarded for what we've done in the flesh, whether it be good or worthless. Listen to me, this is not a judgment of condemnation, but it is a judgment of commendation, a judgment of rewards. In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 13 Paul describes it. He says, for on that day, each man's work will become obvious. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, the judgment of God. The fire will test the quality of each man's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. God is going to evaluate us, reward us based on the things he has entrusted to us. The time, the treasure, the money, the opportunities. How did we spend those things that God gave us? Did we spend them on building our kingdom? Or did we spend those things building God's kingdom? Was our life self-focused or was it God-focused? The Bible says if God evaluates our work as being invested in the eternal things that matter... It's like our lives are made of gold, silver, and precious stones. We will receive a tremendous reward from God. Those rewards can include special praise from our Heavenly Father, special privileges in heaven, special responsibilities in the new heaven and new earth. Whatever these rewards are, the Bible says they are worth living for and sacrificing for. That's one possibility at this judgment. But the Bible also says... If any man's work is burned up, that is when God looks at your life and sees it was all lived for yourself instead of for God, if any man's work is burned up, it will be lost. It will be counted as wood, hay, and straw. And notice what he says. And that person whose life is worthless will be saved, yet it will be like an escape through fire. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss. You know what happens to a Christian who lives his life disobediently? His rewards are burned up. There are no rewards in heaven. You say, oh, I don't care about rewards in heaven. As long as I make it there, I'll be happy. Think again. The Bible says you will suffer, you will experience loss, regret, regret as you look and see what could have been yours if you had been more obedient to God in this life. The loss of rewards. This hasn't been a feel-good message, I know. But the writer does leave on a note of hope. Notice verse 32. What if you're a disobedient Christian who's living apart from God Is there any remedy for that? Yes, there is. Verse 32. He says, first of all, remember your past. Verse 32. Remember the earlier days when after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. He goes on to describe what they had done in the past. Remember, when you went through affliction before, you held on to your hope. Your faith remained intact and God was faithful to you. Why in the world would you want to shake your fist in the hand of a God who has been so good to you in the past? Remember your past. But then he says, remember your future. Look at verse 35. So don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you need endurance, so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. For in yet a very little while, the coming one will come and not delay. Remember your future. Jesus Christ is coming back, and He's coming back soon. To reward the righteous, to punish the unrighteous. Live your life, in anticipation of that soon coming of the Lord. I told an interviewer today, she said, do you think you're going to live to see the return of Jesus Christ? I said, it doesn't matter. She said, well, what do you mean? I said, I'm 64 years old and 30 years or less, either he's coming or I'm going, but the end is coming soon for me. And it is for you as well. The Bible says live your life in expectation of your death or the return of Christ. Don't give up the reward that God has planned for you from your willful, sinful disobedience. You know, I want to close tonight with three simple questions for you that are really the application of this message. Question number one. What are you doing in your life right now you know that God wants you to stop. What is it that you're doing in your life right now that you know God wants you to stop? Isn't it amazing how quickly it comes to mind? Question number two, what is it you're not doing in your life that you know God wants you to start? What is it that you know that you're doing that you know God wants you to stop? What is it you're not doing that you know God wants you to start? And the final third question, what is keeping you from beginning today? For if we deliberately sin after receiving the knowledge of the truth, though no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment, and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. For it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let's bow together in a word of prayer and ask nobody to move or stir for any reason. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I don't think it's an accident that you're here tonight. For some of you, some of you, you are a part of a church You profess to know Christ as Savior, but you can't point to a time with absolute certainty when you took that final step. You confessed your sins to God and you put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Savior. If you were to die right now, you would die separated from God because your sins have not yet been forgiven. Only Jesus Christ can wash you and cleanse you and forgive you of all unrighteousness somebody said five seconds after you die you will begin experiencing unanticipated bliss like you've never known before or five seconds after you die you'll begin experiencing unrelenting horror and pain like you never thought possible but if you wait until five seconds after you die you've waited too long Today is the day of salvation. Right now is the time to make certain your sins have been forgiven. And if you're not sure about that, let's make sure tonight. Tonight, if you'd like to receive God's gift of forgiveness in your life, I want to encourage you to pray this prayer silently in your heart as I pray it out loud, knowing that God is listening to you right now. Would you pray this with me? Dear God, thank you for loving me. I know I have failed you in many ways and I'm truly sorry for the sins in my life but I believe what I've heard tonight that you love me so much you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for my sins to take the punishment from you that I deserve to take for my sins and right now I'm trusting in what Jesus did for me Not in my good works, but in what Jesus did for me to save me from my sins. Thank you for forgiving me and help me to start living for you in Jesus name. Now with every head still bowed, every eye closed. Tonight, if you prayed that prayer, you really meant it with all of your heart. Would you just raise your hand briefly where I can see it? Pastor, I prayed that prayer, yes yes many of you many of you many of you now if you raise your hand you prayed the prayer i want you to listen to me very carefully you've just made the most important decision you'll ever make you've ensured your eternal destiny in heaven now i'm going to ask you to do something if you were sincere about that brother charles is going to stand here at the front Tonight, if you prayed that prayer, as soon as we stand up, don't wait for anybody else, you come down and you say to him, I prayed the prayer, that's all you have to say. He'll know you prayed that prayer to receive God's forgiveness. Now you may say, if I prayed the prayer, what do I need to come tell the pastor? Because there's something about taking those few steps down the aisle that will seal that commitment in your heart. So that in the days ahead, If you ever begin to wonder whether or not your sins have been forgiven, whether or not you're going to be welcomed into heaven, you can always look back to this night, August the 26th, 2019. And remember when you walked down the aisle and told the pastor that you had prayed to trust in Christ as your savior. Don't wait for anybody else. If you were sincere, you'd be the first one down the aisle and tell the pastor, I prayed the prayer. There are many others here tonight, you've already prayed that prayer. But maybe as you honestly assess your relationship with God, maybe you would say, you know what? I've been going in the wrong direction. I'm ready to get back on the right road. I'm ready to start living for God as I have in the past. I'm ready for a new beginning with God. Listen to me, it doesn't matter how far you may have fallen away, a little bit or a long way, God's grace is greater than your sin. All He asks you to do is to confess it and to repent. That means to turn around and get on a new road. So tonight, if you're ready for a new beginning with God, you don't have to go into any detail with the pastor. Just come and say to him, Pastor, I'm ready for a new beginning with God. That's all it takes. Let's stand together right now. Father, I thank you for these who are ready to trust in Christ as Savior, others who are ready for a new beginning with God. I pray these next few moments, no one would resist your Holy Spirit's invitation. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.